we will make decisions at the time that we feel like are the best are in the horse's best interest and then a couple years down the road we may change our mind and that's okay Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Willing Equine Podcast. I'll be recording this episode in my car, so the audio may not be super clear, and sometimes I have my kids with me, so if you hear a little bit from them, I apologize, but hopefully you can still enjoy the podcast. I'd love to hear from you after you listen to the podcast, so feel free to comment on any of my social media platforms or email me or even send me an anchor voice message. Okay, so today I want to talk about part two to my last podcast episode about changes that we can make. Now, you'll have to forgive me if I accidentally repeat some stuff. I'm trying not to, but due to the fact that I didn't want to go back and listen to my past podcast again, because when we edit these things, it takes so much time and we listen to them over and over and over again until we get them just right and everything. And then that was like two weeks ago and I didn't have notes for that episode. So I have no idea what I said. Um, And that's kind of scary actually, but um, I'm hoping that I can record this episode and not repeat a whole bunch. But I do have some really cool ideas from some of you guys that you sent in, and I'm really appreciative of everyone that sent in ideas for this episode. So without further ado, I want to share with you some of the ideas. And and just to kind of recap, what I want to express in this podcast episode, what I want to share with you guys is... Um, The idea that we can make changes to improve the lives of our horses without kind of going all in or completely giving up on horse ownership. And I think that can happen really easily when we start to really go down the pathway of trying to be um, compassionate and understanding and educated horse owners we can often become really overwhelmed with all of the possibilities, all the different changes that we can make, all the different, like the science of horsemanship and horse training is changing rapidly. It's always changing all the time. And really, I mean, the science as far as like psychology and behavior and so much more in emotions and the ways we learn and about trauma and all this, like it's changing so fast, even for the people that are involved in it every day, it can be extremely overwhelming. So if you feel overwhelmed, know that you are not alone and also know that it's okay to bite off little pieces and just implement that and then add something else and then implement that and then add something else and implement that um, and, and make those changes as you can. And I hope to do another podcast episode that is even more in-depth into this and how we can make this transition or even, so the word trans, okay, I'll get back to that. So how we can make progress in our horsemanship journey without just becoming way overwhelmed and trying to do everything all at one time and then feeling like we can't do enough. So why do we even own horses? And, you know, we're just terrible horse people and all of that. And that's not true. It's not true. You, If you're listening to this podcast episode right now, you are somebody that is actively trying to 
learn about your horse and improve your relationship with your horse, or, and it doesn't even have to be this podcast episode. I'm just talking about if you listen to podcast episodes if about horses and horsemanship, if you read books, if you are reading articles and learning from trainers, going to clinics, things like that, you are an active participant in your horsemanship journey, and you are actively trying to improve your skill set and your knowledge and all that. And that is, that's where you need to be. You are exactly where you need to be. And that doesn't mean that you will never progress from here. I mean, hopefully you'll continue to progress and I'm going to continue to progress and we don't want to be stagnant. We don't want to just stay in the same place and never improve and never get better. Um, but it's okay to be where you are right now because you have to be where you are right now to get where you're going to be. So to be where you want to be, eventually you have to start off where you are right now. And so this episode, I want to really help give you some ideas and with my previous podcast episode, some ideas of things that you can do to start implementing changes in least and from my experience of this, these changes that we can start to implement, even if we're not ready to like, or maybe we'll never be, I don't know, you don't have to switch over to and doing clicker training and positive reinforcement and all that. Um, and you know, you may not agree with it completely right now. Maybe in a few years you will. Who knows? I mean, there's really no telling. There's really no knowing. But um, as you're pursuing learning more and as you're pursuing improving your horsemanship skills and being the best horse owner you can be, here are some ideas, uh, at least in my experience, of ways we can go about this that are practical, that are achievable, that will make major impacts in your relationship with your horse and in your horse's well-being, their general well-being, their health, their mental health, their physical health, their emotional state, their social skills. I mean, there's so much here that can make worlds of difference for your horse. And honestly, a lot of this is required before everything else can start to make an impact. Most everything I'm going to talk about in this episode has nothing to do with training and everything to do with um, lifestyle and care and just basic decisions about tack, equipment, things like that. And these things are needed before we can even really start to make major progress in training. So um, I hope that this episode is really helpful for you and gives you some ba some things that you can really um, take into your everyday life with your horse, there, things that are achievable, things that you can, you're like, I can do that right now. That's one thing I can do right now. I'm making progress. I'm taking a step. Um, and that's achievable. And I can feel good about this change that I'm making for my horse and I. So... With that all being said, um, I wanted to talk first about some of the things that my followers suggested to add um, from my first podcast episode. One follower, she suggested, because um, I talked about warming your bits. So this is just one simple way that we can help our horses feel more comfortable about wearing a bit in their mouth. Um, if you're not riding bitless and you prefer to ride with a bit, then this, then sometimes when you live in cold environments, the putting a bit up into the mouth when it's cold can be really uncomfortable for the horse. At least their behavior seems to imply this. And also I just common sense would make it seem that putting something really, really cold into a warm mouth would be uncomfortable. So 
I suggested some different things in my previous episode, but in this one, um, or she suggested using a hairdryer. That's another way that you can help warm up your bit. So besides the warm water, using heating pads, things like that, a hairdryer is another great option to warm up your bit before you use it. And then I also had somebody else point out that, um, that they had never before, from my previous episode, heard about slowly lowering the bit out of your horse's mouth so it doesn't hit against their teeth. And that... It just kind of reconfirmed the importance of being able to share this information, things that I have been taught from other amazing horse people over the years, long before I started training with positive reinforcement and everything, just little considerate actions that we can do to help our horses out and you know because we ask a lot of them we expect a lot of them there's just some basic things little things that we can do to make their lives more enjoyable more pleasant so um, I felt really uh, positively reinforced for hearing that feed from hearing that feedback that that was really helpful to her that 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 could be something that she could do that she could uh be intentional about the way that she lowers the bit out of the horse's mouth after take while taking the bridle off so it doesn't hit up against their teeth because metal against teeth is not fun so that's something else that we brought up another idea i had and actually i may have gotten this from i think i got this from another listener was um patting our horses patting or scratching actually take that back not patting I don't know why I said that. I was reading from a list. Using scratches or gentle strokes on our horses' necks or shoulders or even, you know, their hips or somewhere that they enjoy being scratched or stroked instead of patting them. So patting, I think, is kind of this word that we use. It seems kind of nice, like, oh, we're patting you on the back. But to a horse... um, one, we can't be sure that they actually understand what padding means. I have a lot of people tell me that their horses find padding reinforcing and they know it means they did a good job. Honestly, I, you know, if we were to break it down into a research study and we were to ex- examine different horses and the reinforcing value of a pat versus like a food reward or a scratch or a verbal praise, like which ones would the horse actually find reinforcing? Oftentimes when people tell me this, they're actually, they in their minds, their perception is that the horse is finding value in the pat or the verbal praise, um, when in reality, the reinforcer is the release of pressure. So you finish a nice big jump round. It was beautiful. It was excellent. You're patting or slapping your horse on the neck. You know, you're so excited. You're worked up and the horse is running around and everything. And it looks all glorious and magazine quality, right? Um, And so a lot of people will say that the horse knows that they're being reinforced, that they did a good job, that this was amazing, good job. But if we were to really break that down by with the studying it and um, knowing how behavioral and learning science works and all of that, what's probably the most reinforcing aspect of that whole situation is the release or the relief from the pressure of doing the jumping round. So they know that they got over all the jumps. It was super fast. They did it. They accomplished it. And now the rider is no longer squeezing, kicking, pulling all of this stuff and they get to have their break and they're done. That is most likely, I'm not going to guarantee it, but is most likely the most reinforcing aspect of that entire scenario. Would your horse do that entire jump round 
for some pats. Like if you never squeezed them, never pulled on the reins, never used spurs, never kicked, never pulled, never prodded, never smooched to them, like, you know, never did any of these things. And you just sat there completely idle and you only ever patted them on the neck when they did the thing that you wanted them to do. Would they perform that entire task at hand? Probably not. So we have to say then that padding is probably not the reinforcing part of this scenario. The horse is probably not performing in the way you think they are for the reinforcer you think they are. But we do have research to indicate that horses enjoy scratches, especially scratches on the withers area over, I think it was one or two minutes, I think it's two minutes, can lower heart rates. It's, it is, can be a reinforcing behavior, and it's also a social behavior. Horses scratch on each other and um, nibble on each other. So scratches can be absolutely be reinforcing to horses. There have been many situations where I have used exclusively scratches to train certain behaviors. Now, it's not my preferred way of working unless the um, the horse is just doesn't really like to have food rewards or um, unless, you know, maybe it's foals. Foals really love working with scratches. So that's absolutely an option to work with foals, um, or at least most foals, I should say. Not I don't know about all of them. Um, can't make any blanket statements. But there are horses that will work for scratches, and if you want to give your horse something that's reinforcing to them after a nice jump round, after they've done a good job, all of that stuff, and you want to make sure that your horse really enjoys the thing that you're doing to them or for them as an added benefit for their job well done, I suggest giving them a nice scratch on the neck or the shoulder or the withers area or stroking them gently versus patting firmly. One last little thing I want to add to the whole idea of padding versus scratching or strokes is that padding our horses often looks very similar to when we hit our horses or trying to like shoo them away from us or, you know, get them to step away from us. So it can be challenging for a horse if we look at it from their perspective to differentiate between when we are hitting them because they bit us or they got too close to us or whatever it is and when we are just trying to pat them. Imagine a head shy horse that has been struck on the head multiple times. If you were to go and try and pat him on the head, he wouldn't be able to differentiate between, okay, this is a nice, you know, hand raise and and putting onto my body repeatedly versus this is the time that she's hitting me. So for the rest of the body, I think we should give it that same consideration where there may not be a whole lot of difference to the horse. What's the difference between us patting them, you know, even if it's very gently, but more I'm talking about like when we're like, the, you see those after the big jump rounds, the really like, I don't know, you see sometimes the riders just getting really enthusiastic and excited, like they're slapping their buddy on the back and they're just slapping their horse's neck. What's the difference between that and being struck on the side of the neck uh, repeatedly? So um, I think we need to take this into consideration. I'm sure a lot of horses are, you know, they're able to eventually figure out and differentiate. But if you've ever worked with a really sensitive horse, a horse that is very sensitive to your every action, your every move, uh, um, you know, just pays really close attention to your body language, you'll quickly and fast to start learning how the, how they really don't differentiate between when I raise my hand to pet you on the head versus I raise my hand to pet you or to hit you or raise my hand to put a bridle on. Like they, all they see is the head, the hand is coming up 
to touch them in some way and a portion of the time that is not a good action towards them. So they just then assume that every action in that way is going to be a negative one. So we don't really want to be creating that negative association with what we're trying to intend to be a form of praise. So that just kind of one more thing I wanted to add on to that. So another um, another follower recommended idea was not writing every day. And for some of my followers, this may seem like, okay, I barely write at all. So this doesn't really suit me uh, or benefit me at all. Like I'm already not writing. But for some of my followers, you guys are writing every day. You know, it's the environment we grew up in where we go to the bar and we ride. We go to the bar and we ride. Rinse, repeat over and over again, um, five, six days a week. When I was growing up and even during my young adulthood, um, I had really big dressage horses and we were competing at high levels and all that. And my horses, because especially since they were stalled, um, would, they would work one, like between 30 minutes and an, and an hour under saddle six days a week. And one of those days may have been like casual walking around the arena. And we might have mixed it up a little bit, but really it was just a rinse repeat situation where the ho- this was just their exercise regimen, their training regimen. And we just rode every single time. Um, yes, I understand why we do this as far as the muscle development and all that. But besides the possible physical issues that arise with this type of training program, the constant repetitive motion over and over again on the same joints and the same um, same muscles and the same tendons and the same ligaments, so it's just grind, grind, grind over and over again the same way over and over again. And also just the round and round of the arena, the same environment doing the same actions every day, this can cause a lot of wear and tear on the horse's body. Um, So I personally prefer a more variable training program where we're, you know, out in the grassy field, then we're in the arena, then we're out on a trail ride, then we're going over some small jumps, then we're doing a dressage test, and then we're, you know, doing a quick breeze or whatever. Like, I prefer to do something a lot more variable to not wear out my horse's body too soon and cause an increased risk of injury. Um, But uh, beyond that, I think it impacts our relationship with our horses, too, because it becomes this very much, well, two-sided. One, the um, the rider, I think, very quickly starts to mentally, their relationship towards their horse is very much about it being like a sports piece of sports equipment or a machine. Um, it's robotic. It's over and over again. We drill the same things over and over again. And we start to view our horses in this light that we are always working towards a goal, that we're always, their horses just built and designed and programmed to do this over and over and over again, um, and which can mentally affect us in our relationship towards our horse and get us stuck in a certain way of expecting things in a certain pattern and then we get disappointed and like all this stuff and then we don't know what to do with our horses when they're you know lame and then this perpetuates the idea of that when your horse can't be shown or ridden anymore that you have to get rid of them and it's just this downward spiraling cycle that's problematic in the horse world but on the horse's side of the spectrum um, I think this can be um can cause a lot of emotional and mental problems because they do get stuck in this routine. And while a lot of people will be like, routines are good, they are, but they're also not. If 
think of routine, like replace the word routine with rut. Like that's a negative way of referring to a routine. It's a rut. It's the same thing over and over again. Your horse doesn't now doesn't know how to do anything else. You can't be late with their feeding times. You can't take them out of the arena. You can't just enjoy your horse. You can't do anything because all they know is stall to arena, stall to arena, stall to arena. So when they have to go on stall rest or they need timeout or not timeout, they need, um, and they need rest from being ridden or you try and turn them out or whatever it is, or you try and socialize them with other horses, they lose their minds because they are not equipped to be able to handle this type of scenario, this environment that they should, they are designed to be able to do. So, um, I think it can mentally really harm our horses and really boxes them in and just creates this repetitive cycle, which is also has a tendency then to encourage stereotypical behaviors like weaving, cribbing. Um, oh man, there's so many stereotypical behaviors out there. Like the concept of cribbing, but there are so many, I mean, tongue, tongue sucking, um, I've seen like lip, like slapping where they slap their lips back and forth really hard, uh, swinging the heads around. Like there is so, stall pacing. There's so many stereotypical behaviors that show up because of this type of lifestyle. Now that's not the only reason they show up, but that is a major cause in them. So some of my recommendations are to, um, to one, think about days, like maybe set up a day per week where you don't ride your horse. You still go to the barn. You still spend time with your horse. Maybe even your horse still gets exercise, but you don't ride. Um, this can really help your horse start to associate you also with positive things, things that are not associated with monotonous exercise and um, stressful environments and things like that. And I think it'll also help you to really connect with your horse from your own mindset too. really looking at your horse as an individual, get to know them, experience what they like and don't like, um, do something that they enjoy doing for <laughs> kind of once. But, um, some ideas I have are to go on a hike with your horse. So this is more than just taking your horse out on a hand graze, but absolutely do that too. That's a perfect idea. If you want to take your horse out grazing by hand, I am all for that. But if you can take your horse out on a hike, Put on some tennis shoes or some hiking boots, get your horse on a halt, uh, lead rope and halter, and just head out on some trails. You don't have to ride. You don't have to go trail riding. You can go trail hiking with your horse like you would a dog. So think of your horse as a dog for one day. Um, this is fantastic both mentally and physically for your horse's health and also, I think, for yours as well. Uh, relaxing in the pasture, I mean... Who's saying that we can't just drive out to the barn one day and go and sit in the pasture with our horses? I think this is a fantastic way to spend time with your horse, get to know them, watch them interact with their companions, see what they like and don't like. Let them know also that every time you're out there doesn't mean that it's a riding time, that it's um, that you're going to expect something of them. Take your, like I said before, taking your horse out for hand grazing, that's a great way to connect with your horse and it creates a positive association with your arrival at the barn too. If your horse starts to expect that sometimes when you arrive, you guys get to go out and get some good grass, that, that will create a really positive um, association with your presence at the barn. And also grooming without riding. Maybe you give your horse some alfalfa or some soaked mash to eat while you groom. But I think it's a fantastic idea just to spend time with our horse, grooming them, taking care of them, and then turn them back out. I think it's a beautiful way to really build a relationship. 
Show your horse that sometimes your interactions are more social and they're more relaxed and something positive happens while you groom them. It's a great way to take care of your horse's well-being without actually demanding something of them. But make sure your horse likes being groomed. Sometimes horses don't really enjoy being groomed, so you won't be creating that positive association that you were hoping for if your horse actually hates being groomed. And you'll know your horse hates being groomed if they pace around a lot, they snap at you, kick at you, um, shake their head a lot. Um, and if they wouldn't stand, basically, if you think about it, if they wouldn't stand there voluntarily while you groom them and they would walk off, then they don't actually like being groomed. So, um, that's, you know, make sure that your horse actually likes being groomed before you try this idea, or maybe you try it and, um, you know, you just kind of experiment with, experiment with it and see what happens. And you could try the first couple of times giving them some food to eat while you're grooming, and they may create a new positive association with that interaction with you. Another really great idea that I recommend, hands down, recommendation, fantastic idea, is to teach your horse some tricks. You don't have to start clicker training all the time. You don't even technically have to clicker train. Um, you don't have to stop riding to do this, but if you, like maybe that one day that you come out to the barn and you don't ride, or maybe it's an off weekend day or a holiday weekend or something, uh, teach your horse how to do something fun, like touching a cone or playing fetch. You can teach them to pick up a rag off the ground or pick your crop off the ground or um, there's so many things. Fetching a ball, I'd prefer it be a ball over like a crop, but you know, anything. Um, they like to pick up sticks. They like to pick up things, especially if you have a mouthy horse. This is a really fun trick to teach them. You can teach them to smile. Um, the one trick that I don't really, there's two tricks I don't really encourage people to teach, which is rearing and the Spanish walk. And the reason I don't encourage people to teach the Spanish walk or rearing is not because they can't be used or done or taught well. And that it's that because a lot of times when people are playing around with the idea of teaching new tricks, they don't understand the idea of stimulus control very well, which means putting the behavior on cue so that it only happens when cued. And so what can start to happen is behaviors like rearing or Spanish walk just randomly are offered because the horse is looking for that reinforcement. They want to play. They want to keep doing that behavior. And so now you have a horse that is acting in a quote unquote dangerous way when you haven't um, asked them to do those behaviors. So this can really overwhelm people and it can be dangerous and also can land the horse in hot water as far as accidentally or intentionally being punished for the behaviors that they thought were good behaviors. So try and avoid any behaviors that might be considered dangerous to other people until you have a really strong understanding of how to put behaviors on stimulus control and, um, but other, there are plenty of other tricks you can teach. You can teach backing up, laying down, fetch, smiling. Um, you could teach your horse to say yes and no. Uh, there are so many different possibilities of things you could teach. Some other ideas that I'm sure you've heard me say time and time again on my social media, but I'm going to say here, um, is more turnout time. This is a great way to make a change and an impact in your horse's life that doesn't necessarily require more from you, more effort. You don't have to learn anything new, so to speak. Um, you probably, you might have to find a facility that allows for more turnout time, but the more time you can let your horse out of the stall, the better it is for your horse. That's it. And it will make a massive change change in everything. It will, you might find that it miraculously cures some training problems that you were having. Problems that you thought were training related become just 
just cured overnight, not quite, but over time, it might take a month or two um, because the horse is able to be out more. And when I talk about turnout time, keep in mind that I'm talking about a, a pasture or some kind of turnout that has some variability. So it's not just a completely either solid, flat, dry lot with no qualities in it whatsoever. It's just this open space. So basically, or essentially a very, very large stall. Um, even a green square little paddock thing can act very much just like an oversized stall to a horse. So try and find turnout where there is... Um, you know, turns in the pasture, the fences aren't just this blocked square, um, that there are novelty things in it. So like maybe there's a little creek in it, maybe there's a hill, um, the hay, there's, anyway, there's so many different things. Paddock Paradise is a really good thing to look into. I don't personally have them, but they have really great ideas as far as how to make pastures in limited spaces and how to offer your horse more turnout even when you're operating on like just an acre. I've seen people create areas for their horses to be turned out all the time when they own less than an acre uh, of land. So that's absolutely an option for you. And um, it can be done pretty cheaply with just temporary fencing and all that. So um, I realize a lot of you guys board at facilities and they may not be open to this, but just look into it and consider it as an option. And that will really, that's a big change that you can make for you and your horse. Along with that is the offering or the ability for your horse to have companions, especially if you can offer them a very stable herd environment where they have um, horses in their herd that live there all the time that don't, you know, come and go. One of the challenges that a lot of my students have faced is that the horses will go out into a pasture one day with one horse, then they'll go back into their stall and they're separated from that companion they were out in the pasture with because their stall is somewhere else in the barn. And then they'll go out the next day maybe with that same horse or maybe with a different horse and then it's just um, just this constant rotation that is happening and separation of companions back and forth back and forth and um, this is really stressful on horses and you know it's better than nothing it's better that they get that small turnout time or long turnout time even with variable companions um, rather than just isolation in a stall so it's all you know like let's make progress let's and just do the best we can with what we've got, and then we'll see in the future if we can make even more changes. Um, but if you have the option of finding just one companion for your horse even, doesn't have to be a lot of horses, maybe even a mini donkey or pony, which, you know, just going to put a little disclaimer in here, they are horses too, and they have to be taken care of, and they have their own special needs and requirements. They tend to um, need weight control and are prone to founder and things like that. So yes, they eat less, but they still need hoof care. They still need all the medical care. They, they are still horses, um, but they tend to take up a less space. They eat less grass. And so they are often a really good option for people as a companion for their horse, um, less room in the trailer and so on. So if you have that option of offering your horse a steady companion, that would be amazing. Um, but any companion is ideal as long as they're not just completely at odds and fighting with each other all the time. So if you can offer that, that's an option. Um, you know, and then also on that note of separating companions, just being mindful of how 
sensitive horses are to being separated from their herd. And that means the companion that's in the stall next to them. That means the horses that are in their pasture. That's their herd. Or even the horses that are stalled in the barn. Um, barn sourness, all this stuff. That often is very much the same as the separation anxiety because really it's not that they're... Sometimes it's because they're actually leaving the barn and it doesn't matter that there are other horses or not in that barn. But sometimes it has more to do with them leaving the horses in the barn to go out by themselves. So being mindful of how stressful this can be for horses is a huge thing you can do for your horse. If you could, when it's your horse's farrier appointment, bring in their buddy at the same time so they don't get separated. Um, if you could make sure the companion is in a pen close to the arena while you're having your lesson. If you could leave your horse something fun, enriching, or yummy to have while you take away the companion, that will help a lot. Just doing what you can to reduce that anxiety that can be surrounded or that, that can be, um, a result of being separated from companions will make a huge change for your horse and will really help your horse out. And it doesn't have to be this crazy thing. You don't have to, uh, maybe your horse doesn't really have like severe separation anxiety, but I do this even for my horses that don't really seem to mind too much about leaving their buddies. I still always try and have a companion nearby. Now, I will intentionally train for making separation a positive experience for the horse, but most situations I'm... I would much rather just bring a companion with. I almost never trailer my horses by themselves um, unless it's like an emergency or something. But these are just little actions that we can do, little things that we can plan, a little, you know, extra steps that we can do to really help our horses out. Um, diet change is major here. Um, I am very passionate about a forage-based diet for our horses, but, you know, and I could go down this list for a long time. There's one book that's called Feed Your Horse Like a Horse that I highly recommend. There's also articles that if you're interested, I can send you that are about this forage-based diet. But one thing I want to mention before this podcast episode gets too long is removing sugar and corn and stuff from your horse's diet. Food that makes your horse have insulin spikes and then insulin drops and will cause crazy, neurotic, excessive, high energy, you know, explosive behavior or will compromise compromise your horse's immune system. So horses are just not designed to have sugar in the diet. I can't tell you how many behavioral problems, quote unquote behavioral problems I've fixed um, just by changing the horse's diet. So you may not need a special training consultation, behavioral consultation, and all of these, you know, training gadgets and equipment. You may just need to pull sugar out of your horse's diet and make sure that it's a low NSC uh, diet, meaning that it's, um, I think it's, yeah, I, I'm not even going into all the technical terms, but that has low sugar content. Test your hay, test your grass, make sure that you're not excessively loading your horse up with sugar that they are not prepared to handle. Even, even, I'm going to say it, even your hard keeper thoroughbreds and all those other breeds, it doesn't matter. They are all designed to be on a low sugar forage based diet, um, which then dovetails into they are designed to eat forage. 24-7. I think they pro they graze around 17 to 21 hours a day. So if you can, the more forage you can offer your horses all day long, the better. And use slow feeder nets if you need to, um, enrichment toys, things like that. But your horse should always have food in its stomach. That's another huge, like, again, 
people bring, send me horses or ask for consultations for quote unquote behavioral problems and we change the diet and the horse changes, everything disappears. I didn't have to do any training. Half the time I don't even feel like a trainer because <laughs> I don't ever end up doing any training with the horse. I just change their diet and their environment and everything changes. And all of a sudden these big issues before are all gone. So, um, Okay, so some quicker ideas. Um, loosening your nose band. You don't need a tight nose band. You should be able to fit multiple fingers in between your nose band. If your horse is gaping at the mouth, there's something else going on in your training, in the bit, whatever it is, the way you're using your hands, the way the saddle fits, um, with the horse's teeth, things like this. So loosen the nose band. Your horse will be far more comfortable. They'll actually, it'll help release the tension in the rest of the body. And it will help you actually become a better rider and a better trainer because you won't be ignoring the symptoms anymore. You'll, it'll be front and center. You'll be able to tell when your horse is gaping at the mouth um, or sticking their tongue out or whatever that you're, that something's going on and we need to fix it. I actually have a really good experience experience with this or example of this when back in my traditional days of a dressage, um, I used to have a trainer that would just, I had a crank nose band and I mean that horse had a dent in its face from how tight that nose band was its whole life. And that was because he would rotate it or he would twist his jaws to the side so they were crooked and then he would hang his tongue out. And so they were trying to close his mouth and keep the tongue in. So when I switched over to Bitless, um, just because he and he actually had a broken jaw, and anyway, I, I didn't really want to switch over to Bitless at the time. It was just my only option. Um, now I wish I would have done it a lot sooner. But I switched over to Bitless, and I didn't have a really tight nose bin anymore. And um, when I was riding him and I switched over to a more classical dressage approach, I could tell the minute I was holding on to my inside rein because he would do the same thing again. And if I loosen my inside rein and soften up my body, he would relax and he'd stop gaping. And so if I hadn't continued to shush him to quiet his forms of communication, I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to, or it would have taken me longer to become a better rider. Um, just because, and so just by loosening the nose band, I allowed my horse to speak to me and I was able to become a better rider. So Big improvements from a little tiny change. Um, enrichment activities. The, I have actually on Pinterest a whole board of enrichment activities. So just go to the Willing Equine on Pinterest. And I have a whole board with ideas of do-it-yourself stuff and stuff you can buy. Um, big changes can be made from offering your horses enrichment activities in their pasture, in their stall. doesn't matter where it is. Go crazy, go crazy, crazy, excite your horse, activate their mental activity. Let's get them thinking. Let's th get them out of their shell. Let's get them problem solving. Huge improvements can be made from just this little tiny thing. You don't have to stop riding. You don't have to stop taking traditional riding lessons. You don't have to clicker train. You don't have to go bitless. This is something you can do right now, regardless of where you're boarding your horse, that will help your horse and you in so many ways. Um, one thing that a lot of you guys won't have control over, but if you're ever building a facility or if you're trying to choose which barn to board at, please find somewhere that has stalls that are open and airy and visible. I can't tell you how many barns we have here in Texas that are like concrete jail cells where there are no windows, there are no ways for the horses to see other horses except through the front stall door, but then it's completely graded across the front so they can't hang their heads over. Um, 
I don't see a difference between this and jail. Actually, I think jail inmates are treated a lot better. <laughs> and, um, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not saying we should treat jail inmates worse, but I'm saying we should be treating our horses, these animals we love, as well as we're treating our jail inmates, you know, prisoners, or, or better. Like, I mean, just like, let's take care of them. We say we love them. Let's offer them a way to socialize and to look around and be able to see the outside world. Let's try not to wall them up and put them in jail cells. So, um, you know, if you're stuck at the boarding facility you're at and it's a jail cell type situation, I feel really bad, but I know I understand you just do the best you can with what you got right now. Offer the enrichment, get your horse as much mental and physical exercise outside of the stall as possible. Take them out grazing, take them out to socialize, take them on hikes. I mean, if you implemented everything else and then you still had that stall, I think you're doing great. Um, or if you didn't implement everything else, implement everything else, but then you found them a different stall, you're doing great. So do something, you know, it doesn't have to be everything. Um, don't beat yourself up. Just do the best you can with what you got right now. Making sure your bit fits is a big one. Um, talk to your dentist, equine dentist. Make sure that you're not trying to put too fat of a bit inside of a shallow um, palate mouth. And make sure that your bits aren't causing pinching. I recently read an article about French link bits. Uh, where, you know, we, a lot of people switch over to the French link over the single joint snaffles because, the, you know, the single joints are supposed to cause the nutcracker effect. Well, the French link ones do almost the same thing, um, but they have it in two spots. So it's not necessarily a better option. According to this article, I, you know, do your own research. I need to, I don't really use bits anymore. So I, I wasn't too worried about continuing down that path. Um, but there are certain types of what kind of look like a French link where there's multiple moving parts like Myler bits or one of my favorites is the Herm, Herm, whatever, how are you pronounce? I'm so terrible. I feel terrible. I probably just so butchered that. Um, KK ultra is a Herm Springer KK ultra and it's, there's no crack, you know, joints, there's no, um, nutcracker effect and it's really smooth inside the mouth and uh, the horses I used to use it on all of them I used it on all my horses and they all really did well with it except for the horses that had really shallow mouths um, roof of their mouth they needed something a little bit thinner so um so yeah anyway pay attention to the bit the design and pay attention to the way your horse's mouth is because that will dictate a lot of what you can and can't use and will make all the net world, like it'll change everything. Um, as far as like, you're not going to be able to achieve contact, light, soft contact into the rain. If every time your horse hits the end of the rain, it feels the bit and the bit is causing the nutcracker cracker effect, or is too thick for their mouth. Um, it's going to be painful or it's going to cause them to gape their mouth, you know, all of these possible options. So if you're having problems with that, check out your bit and it could make a huge world of difference. Okay, so last point I'm going to make before I end this episode, because I've just rambled on and on and on, is, um, okay, actually kind of three points. Um, and I want, it's about age. It's about horses aging and our time frame and the schedule we put horses on. Um, weaning at a later age. We are in such a hurry to wean foals. We are in such a hurry, and the research proves over and over and over again how detrimental this is to our horses. Leave your horses, your foals with their dams <laughs> till 
at least six months, but really honestly, at least eight months and 10 months a year, whatever it is, like, let them stay, let them learn to be social, let them learn to be with the herd, let them play. Play is so beneficial for their physical and mental well-being and will really, um, it can actually really improve their performance later on in the show ring if they learn how to move and carry their body and balance and just to get to experience life. Imagine the difference between an athlete who is out there moving and um, out on uneven terrain and, and just getting to experience movement at all different ranges versus an athlete that goes onto the treadmill and then goes right back into bed and then to the treadmill and then to bed and then the treadmill and then to bed. Like that is a terrible idea. This is a terrible idea. And yet we do it to our horses. Anyway, that's kind of back to the stall in the arena situation. But, um, this plays into it because there's so many benefits. If there are any breeders listening to this podcast episode and any, you know, people that are choosing when to buy their horses, you may even be able to pre-purchase your foal at six months and ask the breeder to board your foal with its mother for the next three, four, five months. I've seen a lot of people do that. And that is absolutely an option. Don't be in a hurry to pull your horse away from the herd. And then starting your horse later is extremely beneficial. I could do a whole episode on this. Um, it should be very, very gradual. And, you know, I'm not talking about taking your six-year-old out of the pasture and then working them hard and putting them straight into the show ring. That's not what I'm talking about at all. You should start your six-year-old as slowly as you would start a two-year-old or some people a one-year-old. Um, but you know, maybe you're not wanting to wait till six. That's fine. What about five? Even what about four? I mean, heck I'll take even three over two or one. So it's really good for their mental health and their physical health to wait just a little bit longer. If you can just wait six months, it'll make all the difference for your horses, their physical longevity and their mental well-being. And your horse will be just as sound and just as strong and even better off in my opinion. Um, so that's definitely an option. And then last, last thing I want to mention is and this is going to be a little bit controversial, so I'm going to end the podcast episode with this one, um, is retirement for horses. Please, two things, let them retire. Horses at a certain age should be allowed to retire. They've done good work. They've worked hard for us. Let them be a horse. They don't need a job. They don't need to go round and round in the arena. They don't need to be ridden. Um, if they're used to a stall to arena, stall to arena type situation their whole lives, they will need a very gradual reconditioning out into the real world kind of situation where they learn how to be in the pasture. They learn how to be around with companions and all that, but it is healthy for them. It's good for them and it's good for their joints. It's actually really good for seniors to move a lot. It helps with the arthritis. It keeps it at bay. Um, horses with kissing spine, all this stuff. Movement is excellent. So putting them in a stall is not the healthiest way of taking care of that. Um, so if we can retire them and let them rest, let them be a horse, let they've done good work, um, but do it in a gradual way. So we don't put them through the trauma of just taking them from everything they've known and then throwing them out into the pasture. That is something I think we can do to improve our relationship with our horses and to take a step in our horsemanship journey towards ethical practices, towards um, making our horses' lives better, even if it's at the very end of, you know, whatever their lifespan or whatever, like, let's give them that end. And then also to add on to this, um, put your horses down. I mean, 
I know people are going to just like, what? She just said that. <laughs> if your horse is lame and you don't know if he will ever recover, if your horse is old and really can't be in a hardworking program, and I, if either of those two options, if you have the ability to retire horse, retire your horse in a, a in an ideal environment where you can keep tabs on them and you can take care of them and all that, great, do it. That's amazing. Let your horse retire and let them enjoy their end of their lives. But if you can't afford to do that, and if you don't have that option, um, or you're not willing to do that. I personally think the better option then is to put the horse to sleep peacefully rather than subject them to the possible, just the stress of changing an environment, changing herds, changing owners, changing everything they know, um, possibly ending up in the auction at the auction house, changing homes over and over and over again and losing track of them. I've talked about this before on my podcast, so, um, definitely check out that episode. I'm trying to remember which episode it is, but I can't honestly, but I've talked about it before on here, um, about retiring horses and, um, you know, why you should keep your, I think the episode is why you should keep your horse or we can learn from them or something like that. And, um, I am a huge believer in keeping your senior horses and letting them continue to teach you, even if they can't be ridden every day, even if they can't go in ribbons. My senior horses teach me so much every day and I love them. They are amazing. They teach my students as far and just from the ground, they're not ridden anymore. Um, so I say they're living the good life, which is pretty much life. All my horses are kind of living. I try to make it that way. Um, but they, um, they just get to teach ground stuff and they don't, I don't, nobody ever rides them and they just get to enjoy, um, that. And, and, uh, but you know, like if I was in a limited situation and, or if one of them were to get severely injured and it was going to be a painful recovery or I don't know what, and if I, I was being forced to rehome them or something, I pro I would probably consider euthanizing them just so they ended their life on a good note. It was happy. It was pleasant. They, they went to sleep around with all their companions and they never knew a day of stress in the end. And that was that. Like, I think that is the most ethical decision we can make for our senior animals um, in certain circumstances. And so a lot of you are not going to be dealing with that situation right now, but that is something we can do, a change that we can, a decision we can make to improve our horse's life and to make a small change in how we operate, how we do things. Um, that doesn't mean we have to give up everything. It doesn't mean we have to change everything we've done or are doing. We don't have to do anything else. But if we can just make that small decision, it's an important one. So it, I feel like it belonged in this episode because it was a change that we can make without having to give up everything, without having to change our entire practice, without having to close shop to um, teaching lessons and give up showing and all of that. Like We don't have to do all that. We just have to start making decisions that are with the horse's best interest in mind. And, um, that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to encourage. Okay, guys, that's it for this episode. Um, I probably won't do a part three, but if I get enough recommendations or hear enough things, I might consider one. Let me know what you think, what you think though. I can't even talk. I'm done this episode. <laughs> I'm done. I'm actually like cooking in my car right now because I didn't want to go inside. Um, 
because my kids are all like loud and don't worry, they have a sitter and everything is fine. But um, so I came out into my car where it's quiet to record this episode because I promised myself I would do a podcast episode every other Tuesday. And here we are. It's Tuesday at uh, 3.30 p.m. and I got to get this done and edited and up. So I'm sitting in my car and um, roasting. So I am done. My brain's not working anymore. Uh, but I hope this episode was helpful, that it gave you some ideas of some things that you could possibly implement right now. You don't have to change everything. You just have to start making decisions um, that are with the horse's best interest in mind. And sometimes I want to kind of put this out there. We will make decisions at the time that we feel like are the best, are in the horse's best interest. And then a couple years down the road, we may change our mind. And that's okay. I've done it so many times. I have lists and lists and lists and lists of things that I have done where now I don't think that was in the horse's best interest. But I did what I I knew at the time and what I could do. And I, you know, no better, do better kind of situation where. I'm just learning. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly evolving. My horsemanship journey is evolving all the time. You know, there are probably some things in this podcast episode that I might change in a little while. And honestly, that kind of gives me some anxiety because then I'm never like, this is fact. This is like, I know for a shadow of a doubt that this is the best way to do this. And there are, this is it. This is the answer. And everything else is just like not acceptable. It's honestly a lot easier to operate with that frame of mind where like when you know something, you know it, and it is the truth and nothing else compares and, you know, get back devil, everything else is blasphemy. Um, it's honestly so much easier to operate that way sometimes, but it shuts down the learning process. It prevents us from evolving and improving our horsemanship skills. And, um, it alienates people. And it's also, I think stressful in a different sense. It creates this sense of, I've said sense way too many times, but it creates a need to defend what we believe and to drive it home and to make sure that everybody else understands how wrong they are and how right we are. Um, and so while I could go on a whole tangent about that as well, <laughs> are you getting the picture that I have lots of possible tangents I can go down? Um, bunny trail heaven in my brain. But I, if we're looking at what's in the horse's best interest, it's in the horse's best interest for us to do the best we can right now with the information we have and to constantly be looking to improve and, and add on to that information that we have. So I try and think of it as it's not that I'm going to regret everything that I've done right now or in the past or that I will have done something wrong or bad and now I believe differently, but rather that I'm going to add on to that information, that I'm going to take Yes, I, I made that decision back then, but I didn't have all of the information at the time. And now I have more information and now I can operate off of that. And in two years or six months or two days, even tomorrow, possibly, I'll have more information and I can operate off of that. So think about it. That at least helps me to think about it as we're adding on information and we're operating off of the newest information that we have versus we're doing right or wrong or that we did bad and now we're doing good and and how do we know that right now what we're doing good is when, you know, two years we're going to look back and be like, oh my gosh, I that was terrible. You know, so that just creates this cycle of just worrying. Like, I should know because I've been down this this 
I, I, this is actually really hard for me to do. So I'm kind of talking to myself right now as much as I'm, I'm kind of sharing with you guys the journey that I've been on, um, where I have beat myself up again about stuff in the past. I've also with any new piece of information, any new thing that I know and understand, I'm like, this is it. This is the Holy grail. This is the truth. I must share the truth at like this and everything else is wrong and incorrect. And I must, um, fight against that. And it just has created so much anxiety and also, um, discontentment and, um, just insecurity too, as much as it seems like it should create security, it actually creates insecurity because we're having to constantly defend what it is that we believe. And then also worrying because we have the track record of being wrong in the past, worrying that we are wrong right now. And I could be, um, but I don't know. (laughs) So everything I share in this podcast episode in these podcast episodes and everything that I share on my blog, everything that I share in general, I'm operating off of the information I have right now. I'm trying every day to add on to that information and operate off of that new information. So tomorrow I will have new information to operate off of and to go forth with. So um, maybe that'll help you guys to know that it's the same for me. That there are things that I know I, you know, I didn't just like one day wake up and have this perfect life for my horses. And still, even right now, there are things that my facility and things that they don't offer the horses that I, that I want, that I feel like I should be offering them. And I sometimes will beat myself up about it. I'm like, but why am I beating myself up about this? Um, I'm trying and I'm working with the best I've got right now. And we're making little improvements every day. Like my pastures right now, they are beautiful. They are gorgeous, but they lack variability and they're not as big as I'd want them. And, um, some, and sometimes the grass isn't right. They gets too rich for my metabolic courses. Um, and they also overgraze them really fast, which then stresses the grass out, which then causes problem for the metabolic horses. So then they have to eat off of the hay bales, which the hay bales themselves, it would be better if I could fill hay nets like smaller ones and put them directly on the ground. But I can't always do that because I'm not the one there that filling up the hay every day. And I have to pay people to help me because I live an hour away from my horses. Um, so hay bales, the big round bales with a hay net over them is better right now and better option is the option I have right now. And that's better than no hay through for long periods of the day or gorging themselves and then a starvation period. Um, but eventually I would like to have a situation where they're eating all of their hay directly off the ground and they don't have to reach their necks up so high. And I eventually would like to have a situation where there's bigger pastures that don't get grazed down to the ground with stressed grass and with more variability and things like that. So, um, those are just some small examples of things that I actively recognize are not the best, um, but they are what I've got right now and we're doing the best we can right now. And I'm going to make small changes as I can. So, um, yeah, so it's all work in progress. It's never perfect. (laughs) We're just operating off the best we can do right now with the information we have right now. And tomorrow it may be different. Um, So just take confidence in the fact that even the professionals, even the social media influencers, even the people who've been doing this since they were babies, um, do, 
don't think that they have it all figured out and think that they are perfect or that they live this ideal thing where there's nothing that they would want to change and stuff like that. Um, that's absolutely not true. And if they tell you that's the case, then you might want to steer far, far, far away and <laughs> stay away. Um, so yeah, anyway, I said I was going to end this podcast episode and then I didn't. So here I am ending it. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more, head to my website, thewillingequine.com. On there, I have a really extensive blog. I'm a very prolific writer. And I also have a an FAQ page. And the FAQ has all kinds of things. It has questions and answers about training and about my training specifically, as well as just general about working with positive reinforcement. There's also sections on there about health and um, behavior. So all of that. I'm also on a lot of different social media platforms, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. So check those out and I'd love to hear from you. So don't hesitate to email or send me a message.